0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, tsleil and Kwikwetlem peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend, Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is August 26, 2021, and this is episode 254.
1: I'm Scott Lundaboom.
0: And I'm back. I'm Ian Bushfield. I had a great little trip across the country. How was vacationing? It's called a trip when you have a child. You don't get yeah. to enjoy it. Bump uh, into
1: John Horgan on your uh, jaunt across country?
0: No, but I was actually in Ottawa the day Trudeau made his little uh mosey over to Rideau Hall. So I could have been there to watch that historic moment, that historic mistake as it seems to have turned out for him We'll get into that. We'll also be coming back to the greatest premier bracket, but we're going to truncate it and just look at the first pairing of conservative premiers today, and then we'll get back into the federal election and how the fourth wave is going. The answer is none of these things were great. Thank you, of course, to everyone who contributes to the show every month or annually to keep us going. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to free trial Let's jump over to the greatest BC premier bracket. Thank you, Scott, for... Pausing it for last week, I'm really excited to see how this turned out. It was actually looking in the nonpartisan rounds like a cosmos might get knocked off by John Robson, which I wanted to happen.
1: Real de come Cos- from behind story.
0: Yeah, and De Cosmos didn't accomplish shit as premier, so John Robson at least did. Like some of it was racist, but that's true of every nonpartisan premier and pretty much every premier BC's ever had, and it's gotten less overt or less bad but it was really bad stuff in the first years but more cosmos pulled through 14 to 12 over john robson he's going to face off against charles Semlin in the next round who handily beat george walkham 12 to 6 we're going to get more votes in there as we get into the later rounds these are the kind of boring ones
1: yeah i'm sure when christy clark comes up there will be uh much more angry partisans coming in to, yeah, uh, f- I
0: think we have fill in the responses one way or the other. I think we have her facing off against Gordon Campbell in the first round of the Liberals. So that'll just be contemporary premiers will go quickly. Really interesting battle between Robert Bevan and William Smythe, where Bevan wins 10 to 7. Remember, Bevan Bevan uh, was premier for three months and did nothing other than try to break up the province. So I'm hoping Bevan wins it now all the way. And in the Battle of the Davies, Alexander beat Theodore 9-8, which it's so close. I couldn't even remember off the top of my head which one was which. So good job, Alexander, on beating your brother Theodore. Let's see if you can beat the guy who was barely premier. But we're going to move to the other side of the bracket and look at the conservatives, primarily because chronologically they were next. The first two premiers after the nonpartisan era were conservatives Richard McBride, and then William John Bowser. There were only three conservative premiers, so I pushed McBride forward because he's had more time in office than these two guys. Doesn't mean he's a better premier, he just had more time. So, William John Bowser, the 17th premier of BC, he led from December 15th, 1915, to November 23rd, 1916. Not even a year. He's right up there with the nonpartisans. That said, He was an MLA for quite a while before that, and he was the Attorney General to Richard McBride. He had some prominent activities before he became Premier, including passing things like the British Columbia Immigration Act, which was ultimately disallowed by Lieutenant Governor James Dunsmuir. This was an effort to ensure a, quote, white British Columbia that would keep Asians and the, quote, ignorant hordes out of the province. Essentially, there would be a literacy test Enter the province. Great stuff. Later, as Attorney General, he helped Richard McBride, the premier we'll talk about, force the Squamish people off of the Kitsilano Indian Reserve so they could, I guess, turn it into housing for white people. Continuing the land thefts. Great legacy here. He eventually became Premier after McBride was resigned. McBride cited health reasons, but there's spec- a lot of speculation. Bowser pushed him out for his own political. Um, fortunes yeah reading through it it
1: had a real christian martin feel of kind of the prominent number two constantly vying for the the top spot
0: yeah there was a lot of speculation at the time that bowser was the brains behind the machine and there was a lot of talk of like machine politics it was just this like tight-knit political operatives
1: yeah and the opposition parties would often refer to it as the bowser mcbride administration or government Really hinting at that behind the scenes, rule.
0: But by the time Bowser did manage to become premier, the party wasn't doing pretty well. They were pretty unpopular. They looked pretty corrupt, and British Columbians wanted a change. So they went down in 1916, in which the Canadian Annual Review called, "quote, perhaps the most complete overthrow in political history." I think that was written well before that was, that was written well before the NDP's rump in. 2001.
1: Or the PC's 1993 just decimation.
0: Yeah, I think he held on to half a dozen seats. So that did better than both of them. Bowser stayed in opposition until 1924. And when he lost his seat in that election, he returned to politics in in 1933 as leader of a nonpartisan independent group but died during the election campaign. The only other thing I'll mention about William Bowser is we previously mentioned him on a Canby report as a Vancouver Ada, because his is the only grave where we don't know where it is. Every other premier who has died in this province, we know where they're buried or cr- their remains are. William Bowser is missing, which How is just one weird.
1: misplace a dead premier?
0: I, it's weird. It seems like he died in Vancouver, but they may have planned to put him in Victoria, but then somewhere along the way. Maybe his ashes got scattered into the sea, but we didn't have a record of it, so we don't know where Bowser is now. He's facing off against Simon Fraser Tolmie, the 21st Premier of BC who led the province from August 21st, 1928 till November 15th, 1933. He became Conservative leader in 26 while he was still a federal MP, and he remained a federal MP until the 1928 election. So he led the Conservative Party of BC from his seat in Ottawa which sounds like a real Bloc Québécois move. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, there was certainly an element of that, although clearly it wasn't successful if he became premier after that election.
0: And it was a real power move. They took 32 of 48 seats in the legislature and so really swung into power, pushing the first liberal administration out and bringing the conservatives back. He had come in with a commitment to apply, quote, business principles to the business of government. Real classic conservative rhetoric Unfortunately, the Great Depression hit during his reign, and unemployment in BC went to 28%, which was the highest in Canada. And that drew a lot of criticism for the Ptolemy administration, and he eventually had to agree to do something. And I think BC was one of the last provinces to set up relief camps. The party was in such a disarray and didn't do well through the Depression that in 1933, the Conservative Party's executive committee decided not to run any official conservative candidates, and each local association decided how they wanted to run the election. So they either ran as independents or, quote, independent conservatives. Really managed to run his party into the ground.
1: Yeah, usually when a party gets just wrecked, they at least bother to put up candidates in the next election.
0: And here's where Bowser comes back because he leads this faction of non-partisan conservatives and told leads like the unionist conservatives Um, didn't go well for them. The liberals ended up winning 42% and 34, 47 seats. The CCF, which had only recently formed at that point, became BC's official opposition, bringing us into the modern era where the socialist hordes are at the gates. And the Conservatives, in total, between all of their iterations, got five seats in the province. And that was pretty much the end of the Conservative Party as a brand in the province of BC. Uh, and tolme ended up switching back to federal politics in 1936, but died a year after getting elected. So, unglorious ends to both Bowser and Tolme. One passed a bunch of racist stuff and then barely had time in office as premier. The other led during the great depression and didn't do a great job at it i actually don't know who i'm going to pick so there you have it our first two two of our three conservative premiers but let's jump to the federal race i think i want to call it i've made a huge mistake do you think justin trudeau is regretting the election call at this point if
1: he's not he should be I I, I don't quite know how in the bubble they are because they have clearly bought their own hype in the lead up to the election. I am curious if the poll today that came out that had them under 30% is finally enough to shake them out of that. Reporting in the Star suggests that they are holding course and that, uh, quote, Trudeau doesn't do shakeups. So not sure on that one. Yeah, it's bad for the, the Liberals. The,
0: yeah, the poll you're mentioning is from ECOS. It had them at 29% to the, to the Conservatives at 33%, NDP at 21%. There's been a string of polls this week that all have the Conservatives and Liberals neck and neck, and the NDP sitting at about 20%. The narrative, though, is definitely that Aaron O'Toole is doing well, Justin Trudeau is doing bad, and Jagmeet Singh is there being interesting, but not quite taking off yet. I don't think he's faltering, but he still hasn't had his moment to make a jump for it. He's not pushed out yet, I think, though.
1: Yeah, he's been holding steady.
0: Which is a good place for him to be. I think what will be interesting to watch in particular is how things start to move after Labor Day, when I think people have had a bit of a break and start to come back to the fall and paying actual attention to the election and the debates when they happen. Yeah, uh, we're
1: basically... We're basically at the one-third of the way through March now, so it's uh, still early days, plenty of time for things to change. Clearly, enough Canadians are paying attention to have a reasonably large shift in the polls, at least for the Conservatives, compared to where they were pre-election. Seems a little weird now that O'Toole is tied in the lead, but was it two and a half, three weeks ago? There was questions about whether he was even going to be able to mount an effective campaign if the conservatives were done for even before the writ dropped. And that idea narrative has just completely disappeared as they came out of the gate pretty strong and have done a pretty good job campaigning so far.
0: Yeah, I didn't get a good chance to talk with all my extended family while visiting them in Ottawa and Calgary over my trip but what I did manage to glean and some of this was very early in the campaign was no one's that enamored with Trudeau and similarly especially in Alberta no one was that enamored with O'Toole that said there was like there was some interest in Jagmeet Singh in the NDP's campaign but I feel like a lot of the shifts took place as I was leaving and in the last few days especially
1: yeah and doing a little bit weaker in Alberta was probably actually a good thing for O'Toole, for one, then it does mean that his top line vote numbers are actually probably don't translate into a more efficient vote. And he can probably pick up more seats just by doing slightly worse in Alberta, but better elsewhere. And in that respect, from a strategic point of view, they've clearly learned the lessons of Shears. Uh, failed campaign and are very much doing a target the middle of the spectrum try and win over undecideds and the median voter rather than doing a hard play to the base strategy and so far it seems to be paying dividends for them
0: yeah this is really interesting to watch and we'll get into it when we talk in some of the policy of the last week where o'toole is positioning himself But him as a contrast in this campaign to Sheeran, the last one, who fought continual, like, I'm a social conservative, but I'm not the social conservative you need to be afraid of, and I won't be a social, like, he was plagued by that. Harper was also plagued by that, but managed to get around it by just being that I'm the economist, and I'll just not talk social conservative stuff. And it got him one majority. Tool, I think, struggled with that prior to the election call. Prior to that, it was his caucus was unruly and noisy, and that might still erupt. But so far, it's been pretty disciplined. And he had some initial questions around what is the conservative p- position and policy around abortion and abortion access. But that went away pretty quick. And some of the other policies we talk about are breaks from where the conservatives have been in the past.
1: Yeah. And at and that contrast quite a bit with the liberals who haven't really found an idea a narrative a, just a reason, even a reason to have the election they, they still haven't really come up with a good explanation of that even 2 weeks in i think we've moved off the why are you calling an election thing now but i think that kind of feeling that this was a opportunistic move by trudeau that didn't really have any underlying reason beyond that has just become set now and it would take quite a bit to move the feeling of the country off that quite a bit and instead they've gone through for a swing for the fences we'll try every kind of wedge issue we've ever run a campaign around or or used in a past campaign for a period of five days they tried what was it vaccines abortion healthcare. there's probably one or two others i'm forgetting that they, they trotted out so many at this point, I half had expect them to be dusting off the uh, soldiers in our streets ad from uh, 2006 in a, in a desperate attempt to try and stop the bleeding.
0: At the very least, they are trying to make some policy announcements. Do we want to talk about their big housing platform as it came out, especially since we have conservative and P ones to contrast it with?
1: Yeah, this week, they finally at least started putting out some substantive policy stuff. I don't really feel like it's hit a... Um, general kind of theme for them to be running on but they're at least starting to to talk policy
0: so the liberal housing announcement is around three themes unlock home ownership build more homes and protect your rights in addition to that there's the ban on foreign ownership and an anti flipping tax which came out at an awkward time for their vancouver granville candidate who had an Story about how he's been flipping homes for a few years, which is a very Vancouver-specific scandal.
1: It, it, it's perhaps the most Vancouver scandal to have.
0: It's either that or Don Davies yelling NIMBY talking points at city council hearings. Well, he
1: had his against. own, mi- yeah, he had his own minor uh, dust up with some pretty ill-conceived remarks he made about his uh, liberal challenger as well. So he's not exactly going through this election unscathed either.
0: So, let's tackle these in churn. Unlock home ownership. This is the fuel on the fire pledge that every party seems to want to do because home ownership, as a homeowner, I would have to say is the quintessential Canadian dream. Although, it turns out home ownership is very expensive and takes a lot of time and effort because there's always more shit to do. There's so many projects, which is good and bad, but it's just fact of life. The Liberals want to get you to be a homeowner through a couple different programs. Number one, they're going to throw a billion dollars for loans to create more rent-to-own programs so that you can not just spend your rent money. Um, You can use your rent money to build equity in some way. They're going to create a new TFSA savings plan that you can use for down payments. It's only available for people under 40 and will let you save up to $40,000 tax-free.
1: So the, when this initially came out, I was a little skeptical of that because $40,000 is about little – that's seven years of TFSA contribution room. So in that respect, it's it's not much better than a the TFSA. The, the thing that actually is quite powerful in it is that you put in the money pre tax. So you, it's like an RSP that you get to claim it against on your taxes, which does – help it a bit and basically means if you funnel the money through this vehicle you can get a big chunk of your down payment with pre tats rather than post-tax money which is the main advantage for it because yeah. otherwise you just use a tfsa
0: i guess you can't really call it an rrsp for housing i guess you could call it a r h o s p a Registered homeowner savings plan. That's what they should have called it, actually. Although <laughs> yeah. that doesn't roll off the tongue. But as
1: well. Unlike the other registered plans, this one you also pull out the money tax free, so it's right. Generally pretty good. Uh, the TFSA is a great uh, program and probably one of the best. It's I think one of Harper's best legacies. But this builds on that a bit, but also feels like annoyingly tailored rather than just improving the TFSA generally.
0: Well, and it's. Not something that solves the housing crisis because the housing crisis isn't an issue of you or many people can't save money for a down payment. It's that even if the money were tax free, housing is so expensive that being able to save up that money without like money from family or other inequitable sources is incredibly difficult. So the other two programs they're talking about are first expanding the home expanding the first time home buyer's incentive and doubling the first time home buyer's tax credit to $10,000 which again makes those down payments a little bit easier around the margins but it makes them easier around the margins for upper middle class people and above as homes get in absurdly expensive like most people won't be able to use these incentives to get a million dollar single family home in metro vancouver
1: yeah, there's just a couple of these are basically just expansions of their national housing strategy they rolled out a couple of years back. And there was a report that came out just before the writ dropped from I think it was PBO uh, that basically said that this isn't actually doing much and these programs aren't getting the results they, they uh, that were promised for it. Uh, and like I started looking for a place to buy it and talking to people in the real estate industry, just realtors and nobody recommends a first-time home buyer actually use the first-time home buyers incentive which kind of makes it a bit of a dud
0: yeah a lot of this housing plan is basically we have the national housing strategy from the liberals and they're going to just throw a bit more money at it like if we go over to the build more home section it's more money for the housing accelerator fund it's more money for office to market housing conversions and it's more housing for, and it's more funding for the national housing co-investment fund, which are I'm sure all good programs, but it, they all seem insufficient and not really tailored to the scope of the problem.
1: Yeah. So when the liberals announced this plan, they touted what was it 1.4 million homes over four years, clearly trying to one up the conservatives one million homes over three years plan
0: i can't uh, wait for the greens to come out and say one billion homes
1: no because they hate development so they'll i don't know have 20 tiny homes in the and they have somewhere. no plan
0: which we'll yeah. get to
1: uh, but yeah it turns out that was an insanely padded number because that 1.4 million includes renovations and preservations of housing so you can pretty much just count any home that exists now and will exist in four years towards that, which is already over 1.4 million.
0: It's Uh, it's not as bad of an exaggeration as the Tim Hudak million jobs promise or whatever it was, where it was starting with slashing the public sector. So at least Trudeau's not planning to burn down homes as soon as he comes into (laughs) a re-election.
1: Yeah. Turns out the actual net new homes number is 100,000, which is from this housing accelerator expansion. And This is an opt-in program for municipalities to help them get homes built.
0: Quote, quote, middle class homes. Yeah. I don't know what that means.
1: Vancouver, realistically, that's condos and apartments. But more generally, I'm just a little skeptical of an opt-in program. Yeah, it would be nice for cities to have a little more money, but already building new homes, particularly in places like Vancouver, Toronto, the the big high-cost Cities is already a financial winner for cities, and they aren't doing it because their their local politics is all screwed up, and they're basically already have billions of dollars they're leaving on the ground from bad development policies. I'm not sure an opt-in program is really going to do much compared to say a more of a stick approach that would say withhold funds and actually leverage general loss aversion uh, among cities and just psychology in general.
0: There's a couple other things in here, like the multi-generational home renovation tax credit to give you $50,000 if you're creating a grandparent suite kind of thing. That seems nice for those who need it, but like it's not going to solve the housing issue. The other big thing that got me is they talk about, there's a, a heading that says end chronic homelessness, and it brags about how their goal is to reduce chronic homelessness by 50% by 2027, which is good, but is not ending. It's it.
1: a very big asterisk on end.
0: Yeah, we'll end half of it, and we're not going to talk about the rest. So I didn't understand that bullet point. Like, I'm glad to see all the parties are at least talking about housing and talking about the need to build more and to get more stuff out there. I'm a bit disappointed by the liberals here. What I do actually like is their Homebuyers Bill of Rights. As someone who has gone through the real estate process, it's awful, it sucks, and everything they say here is pretty good. They would ban blind bidding, so you would actually know what other people are offering, so you're not just in a runaway situation, like when I bid against 42 other people for a house, that sucked. You would have the right to a home inspection, so they can't uh, just waive that, which also is a good thing because people are making essentially cash offers in Vancouver where there are no conditions. And if you're lucky, you've done a home inspection before you're making an offer, which is ridiculous that you have to do that. And there would be a transparency of recent sales prices. So you would actually know easily without having to go through realtors what uh, houses are selling for.
1: That's Yeah, that's all good. It's probably the actual best part of it. Mostly because none of the other stuff really stacked up well against the other parties.
0: Yeah, like I don't pretend to imagine that any of this will solve the housing crisis anyway. It might slow the growth down a little, but prices will still go up even with this kind of thing. Um, it's yeah, just like, something that helps make it more fair, which I like.
1: Yeah, it's of, if you're looking for a policy that stands out in this rather than is a bit of an imitation of and a pay limitation of that of what the other parties are offering. That part is the piece that does stand out. Overall, if I was to do a grab bag of the three parties on this, I'd I'd want the Conservatives uh, tying transit funding to home building and uh, municipal policy changes, the NDPs, non-market housing funding, and the GST cut for rental housing, and then the Liberals, the Bill of Rights uh, for Homebuyers. That-
0: I want to get your take on Patrick Johnston, uh, New Westminster City Councilor's response to the conservative pitch there. He was critical of it, suggesting that it's a bit of red tape that would probably tie up and impede both housing construction and transit funding because of the way municipalities suck.
1: I didn't find that particularly convincing. Yes, municipalities do suck pretty hard, but there needs to be something to shake them out of this. And I think the three-year time frame in the conservative policy uh, document is very ambitious, particularly when it comes to the tying funding to transit thing. But I do think as a medium-to-long-term solution, it's – Quite powerful, and if used, and it's all going to depend on the details in the final implementation, but it could be quite a significant tool to influence policy. And we've seen that with how the power of the first gets used in a bunch of other policy areas.
0: I think we'll move on from housing. There's a couple other small things that were interesting, including mortgage deferrals for people who lost their job and an effort to stop rent evictions through requiring disclosures by landlords of rents pre- and post-rent and then a surtax if the rent is e- excessive, which is novel. But the Liberals also want to go after the big banks to help fund some of their housing pledges.
1: Yeah, so they're the, the following day they announced they want to add an additional 3% onto the corporate income tax, but only for financial institutions with earnings over a billion dollars.
0: Yeah, so the idea, and to put it in the Liberals' terms, the reason is banks and insurance companies are making the most profit they claim during the pandemic, and they're doing it on the back of working-class Canadians and those working hard to join the middle class or whatever the Liberals say. And so they're the ones who should pay for getting us out. And so the idea is let's put an increase in corporate tax of 3% on earnings over a billion, a progressive-style income tax, fine, that sounds good, but for some reason only apply it to these because if an airline made over a billion dollars or a social media company earned over a billion in Canada, why aren't we
1: Yeah, the, the reason, though, yeah, I think it's because uh, it makes no sense to do bespoke tax rates for every single sector of the economy on this or even singling out single sectors on this. You don't think there's enough corporate income tax r- promise to raise the corporate income tax don't do this weird only for financial institutions thing
0: oh but then they also say there's going to be a canada recovery dividend paid by the same banks and insurance companies for four years that is an indeterminate amount and will be decided by consultation with the banks and or the chief of financial planning
1: this is a weird gimmicky policy that yeah feels like they're I don't know, out of ideas and are trying to find something somewhat populist to...
0: It's like they wanted to do an excess profits tax, but don't have the balls to do it. (laughs) Like, the idea, and I think we talked about this with Seth Klein in terms of the climate stuff, is during World War II, there was this, oh, you're profiteering tax on companies that made a lot more money during the war than they made in the pre-war period, and the government of the day said no this you should not be profiteering on the misfortune and work we're all trying to do together your profits are limited to what you made before you don't have to do it that harshly now but i think there is support for those kind of measures being applied to no one likes profiteers so i guess elon musk likes profiteers and his fanboys do The liberals peg this combined measure to bring in two and a half billion dollars per year for four years, which is not an insignificant amount of money. But again, just do it across the board.
1: Yeah, it's a platform that promised that makes no sense. I I don't think I saw a single economist say anything nice about this. It it really does have a, a slightly desperate feel from the liberals on it.
0: Let's pivot to the Greens. We hinted that they have no platform, and this is based on a Toronto Star piece that came out this week that's titled, No Platform, No Problem, says Green Leader. Just use Google. Anime Paul was asked when their platform is coming out since the Conservatives and Liberals have theirs out already. The, and the, the Liberals have put sorry, out a the couple of conserva- promises. The, the Conservatives and NDP have their platforms out already, and the Liberals have started dropping some promises. And Anime Paul says most of our positions will be virtu- quote, virtually identical to the previous election. And you can use your search engine to find them.
1: Man, the Greens are terrible at politics sometimes. So
0: like the, in the Greens' defense, the mm-hmm. ideal way they say their party would work and that they work is the members pass policy and the Greens are a very democratic party and they would be bound to that. So they're platform would simply be the policy book adopted by the membership and so she wouldn't be wrong to say just find our policy book and read that's what our platform is i don't know why you would say that to the media ever
1: or why you wouldn't just take those ideas repackage it in a new pdf and announce that oh we're going to be dropping this i don't know in the lead up to the debates or something
0: they do say that something is being pulled together and i imagine it's exactly that and that's what most parties do, only they uh, ignore the parts they that probably will embarrass the party, or at least that the party execs think will embarrass the party that the leader doesn't like, and add a few things that are similar enough, and they run on that. The, or I mean, or if you're just methods. the liberals, but, so
1: you just write the entire thing in the leader's office.
0: Yeah, Yeah, you totally ignore your membership, although the NDP and conservatives do that for different reasons. But yeah. Annamie Paul running her Toronto Centre campaign, I believe it is. Toronto Centre. And not leaving Toronto for this. So lots of interesting choices being made there. I almost feel bad for them. I'm curious to see the nomination deadline. We looked this up earlier today is August 30th is Monday. I'm curious to see how many Greens are on the ballot across the country as of Tuesday.
1: I'm going to guess the number is not going to be 338.
0: I'll be impressed if it's north of 200. Meanwhile, the Conservatives are talking about workers. You pulled in some bits from their platform. Let's get into it.
1: Yeah, these items I've laid here were the specifically the announcements that Aaron O'Toole has been doing in the past week. They're, they've adopted a, a strategy of basically doing announcements off of the general platform they've already put together and are doing oh one to two, maybe three policy announcements a day just doing a steady stream of those but quite interesting i I want to circle
0: back to that for a second i listened to last week's pod great episode i always love david Mosscrop. but one of the things we discussed two episodes ago was whether or not it was a good idea for the ndp to drop their platform early and i think you were critical of that but then when you talked about the conservatives dropping their platform early it seemed like a good idea
1: i'm still a little skeptical it's going to hold out long term on this I, i think it's performed better than i expected it would in the last week or so and part of me wonders how much of that's just liberal floundering
0: you know what it is from my point of view the conservatives actually have ideas in their platform to their credit
1: yeah and there's definitely some interesting ones like i don't know if they'd announced i'm trying to think what the most like stereotypical conservative policy plank in there was but if they announced you know
0: abolish the carbon tax
1: not, I I don't even want to go into the, the complex <laughs> carbon pricing thing in there. But yeah, if they'd run off, if they'd announced the, the most red meat possible position, I'm not sure we'd be talking about it. I don't think the media would have really said much about it or anything. Whereas these ones are interesting because it it really does indicate a change of direction, a a very different uh, version of the Conservative Party than we saw in 2019, or we've seen for quite a while, actually. And particularly with these worker ones that very much seem to be premised on a strategy that Sees working class Canadians as a potential growth area for conservatives, which makes a fair bit of sense. Traditionally, this is the kind of labor vote has been concentrated among the NDP and to an extent the liberals as well. But a lot of working class people are not as culturally progressive as particularly the NDP and the liberals as well. And it's definitely an area where there is growth potential for the conservatives, who I think much better are in general alignment with them on cultural issues.
0: I think that's generally true. And I think the one thing that's shifted, and I think the conservatives recognize this and are getting there, is that in the last six months in particular, with the discussions around residential schools, I think a lot more people are in tune for the need for serious action on reconciliation and dealing with this stuff that was one takeaway i had from my you know conversations with my family in alberta that recognize like trudeau's not fix the water crisis and so that's something that i think is live and that the conservatives just need to make sure they're on and i'm i haven't dug into that part of their platform enough but
1: that wasn't a section you would have seen in many party platforms just a decade ago
0: Exactly. So let's get into their stuff on workers. The first interesting one, and I think the one that's taken the most attention, is this idea that any company with over a 1,000 employees or $100 million in annual revenue that's federally regulated would have to give workers a seat at the table, including worker representation on the board of directors. It doesn't say how much or in what form, so it might just be one person, but it's something.
1: Yeah, seats at the table for sure. What that actually amounts to still a little unclear in total numbers. But yeah, very interesting. This is something that Germany's had for a long time. In the North American contest, I think it gained prominence last year as a fairly prominent plank in the Elizabeth Warren presidential platform, which definitely makes it an interesting one for the conservatives to adopt.
0: I feel like Jeremy Corbyn had something very similar, if stronger, probably, but a matter of like Workers will be at the board table.
1: Yeah, I mean, this isn't pitched in quite as much in quite the same language as those two platforms and campaigners did, but the general policy idea is somewhat similar to it, and it's interesting. i This is something I don't have a, a strong views on one way or the other.
0: But so my it's, one it's, concern mm-hmm. would be if it's an effort to undermine unions and try to like diffuse their power. But then when you get into the rest of the platform here, they're actually more pro-union than I would have expected. Like They talk about, quote, level the playing field between unions and multinationals when implementing Canadian labor code changes to allow unions to form at large employers, especially those with a history of anti-labor activity. This is language straight from the Conservative Party platform somehow.
1: Yeah, and th- there's been a bit of a change in the general... Uh... Conservative zeitgeist, um, intellectual firm, whatever you want to call it, where uh, there's been a somewhat of a reevaluation on private sector unions. I, I think there's still a lot of skepticism towards public sector unions. But when it comes to the private sector ones, there's, uh, I think, a willingness to give them a, a, a second look that hadn't always been there. And there's. Yeah, it makes for very interesting politics and hints at a kind of potential realignment in what's otherwise been a fairly static Canadian political spectrum for a while.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of other stuff pitting pensioners and people who've retired, putting their interests ahead of, quote, corporate elites and executives, making sure that bonuses can't be paid out until pension plans are fully funded things that will go very well to older workers and to retirees, but I think everyone should pay attention to because if you're lucky enough to have a job that has a strong pension, especially and in federally regulated sectors, you're looking at the airlines, you're looking at the banks. These are well-established industries that are undergoing changes, often have strong unions.
1: Yeah, the pension ones, some something that definitely need to perform for a while and doesn't exactly spell it out here, but I'm I'm hoping that's part of the subtext around protecting uh, pensioners would be to give it uh, senior status in the sequence of creditor obligations and basically make it the first rather than maybe the last or further down on the order of precedence when it comes to paying out a bank
0: company's assets. And there's some content around improving EI, something that I hope every party is really looking at and gig workers again something every party needs to look at
1: yeah so they want to increase the ei sickness benefit up to 52 weeks i think it's currently set at 15 for gig workers they want employers to pay into an equivalent to cpp and ei into a portable employee savings account so it doesn't sound like they are quite bringing, want to bring it into the CPP EI system, but it would have premiums at the same level as those systems would. And it would be an account that follows workers around and they would have uh, more access to.
0: This is the election of who's got the most novel savings accounts. Uh, you know, this is better than the climate savings one because it's cash.
1: Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that the is- climate saving ones... Is, we don't need to relitigate that. It's the weirdest part of their climate platform. And yeah, I don't even know what else to say on that. But the final thing is the super EI, which I'd initially passed over when I was doing my first read through the document, but actually embedded in there is a really interesting idea. Uh, so this would automatically increase the EI payouts when a province goes into recession defined as a five, uh, 0.5% increase in the unemployment rate, something known as the sham rule. And this is named after US economist Claudia Sham, who basically proposed this as an automatic stabilizer to the economy, an automatic stimulus that when certain indices or metrics are triggered, such as this increase in the unemployment rate, government stimulus payouts automatically kick in. So this is actually a very interesting kind of macro policy that, not only provides benefits to laid off workers, but also is a bit of a economic stimulus and economic stabilizer hidden in there.
0: Should be really popular in places like Alberta that go through wild swings in employment and in boom bust cycles. I'd be curious to dig into it. We don't need to go into it now. I guess it's just the cost, like why not just increase all EI payments to 75% because that would be helpful. But I guess that would cost an obnoxious amount.
1: It would be a pretty significant cost. And you also, I think, mute the stabilizer benefits there because part of the idea of this is to automatically put in more money to the economy when it is going into recession rather than having to rely on the political will and the legislative process to, to get that happening.
0: The other big policy announcement this week that O'Toole highlighted, and I think he did it here in Vancouver, is he talked about the opioid epidemic and how the conservatives would go after uh, addictions issues and... His quotes, I thought, were really interesting. He said, as prime minister, I will treat the opioid epidemic as the health crisis that it is. I don't think someone with an addiction should be punished. I think they should be helped. So they pledged $325 million over three years for 1,000 new treatment beds and 50 recovery centers and a billion dollars over five years for indigenous mental health and addictions, culturally appropriate programs. He was asked about decriminalization, which he didn't endorse, but he did advocate for greater judicial discretion for treatment options. And he explicitly said he wouldn't block safe injection sites, and he would work on both treatment recovery angles as well as harm reduction, which I think is a big shift in rhetoric and approach from how conservatives were viewed, especially under the Harper years, where advocates fought to the Supreme Court repeatedly to get things like insight open. And here you have a conservative leader saying, let's make sure we have all options on the table. And do this as a health crisis.
1: Yeah. Also another kind of fairly significant change from where the party's been. And between this and some of the other stuff, I overall, I have to say, I'm really liking both the platform they've put together overall and the tone they've struck on the campaign trail. It's... Be night and day compared to the the Shear campaign for sure. I think probably the uh, clearest example of the tone difference related to the comments Mary Monsef had made the other day. Not to go into that, but if Shear was the leader, it would have been a hyperbolic, over the top, just going after Trudeau on those. And instead, when he was asked about it, it came out much more of a fairly level-headed, measured response that expressed more concerns about the suffering of the Afghan people rather than using it as something to hit uh, the liberals over the head with. And that kind of just more statesman, prime ministerial a- positioning and attitude and uh, approach to this all is really being good to see from O'Toole and the conservatives and I just wish we saw that uh, in the lead-up to the election, too, Just this definitely was missing earlier this year, and I'm glad to see they found it.
0: Yeah, we definitely have O'Toole leadership race circa whatever it was, 2015. 2017 was the— 2017, rather than O'Toole leadership race 2020, where then he was the moderate candidate. In the more recent one, he was the true blue candidate, and now he's back to the moderate one which is nice to see. I have no clue what he'd be as prime minister, and especially if his caucus is the one he had in the last session, where it seemed pretty sharply divided between the moderates and the social conservatives. But we still have lots of election left. Let's jump across the aisle to the other opposition, the other opposition, the fourth place party, the NDP. They managed to highlight Two things this week. One is to rename the Toronto Danforth riding the Danforth Layton riding, which was dumb. Why so would bad. you waste any time on that? Let's not waste time on that. But their other one was telecoms, which was interesting. The NDP had some standard NDP pledges on here around capping cell phone and internet bills, declaring high speed internet an essential service, requiring basic plans that are com- comparable with affordable plans in other countries reasonable stuff requiring unlimited wireless data at affordable rates but i think what was the most interesting was to m- ensure that everyone could get high-speed internet and wireless services within four years they would start a crown corporation to make sure it happens
1: yeah this is some i've strategy to give credit with credits do it would be good to have a, a crown corporation on this the provinces that have a fourth major player sastel and mts
0: and videotron Uh,
1: videotron oh yeah the i was trying to remember the quebec one they all have more affordable cell phone plans from the other providers too it is cheaper to get a telus plan in Saskatchewan than it is in bc and it would be good to have just another Entry in the market. I also like the Conservatives' plan of allowing foreign competition from countries that have a reciprocal arrangement with Canada. Companies can compete there and theirs can compete here. This one's also pretty good too. And telecoms isn't quite a natural monopoly, but it has high enough barriers to entry that it's close to that. And anything that you can do to get more competition in there would be good.
0: I'll flag my one concern with the Conservative plan before we jump on. I like the idea and principle, but I think that caveat of the reciprocal arrangement means that our oligopolies could simply say, we're not interested in going into other countries. We're just going to keep abusing the Canadian market and then no one else gets to come play here.
1: Uh, I, I don't think that's actually the way it's... Or at least that's not how I read it. That's I interp- how I
0: read it the first time, but maybe okay. I'm wrong.
1: I, I interpreted that as if country... X, Let's say America. Yeah. If America doesn't have a law prohibiting uh, foreign ownership or of telecoms, we'll let American companies do here, and our co- companies can go there. It's The the reciprocalness was my understanding, of, was the legal framework and not... Are companies actually having business units there?
0: Let's hope it's that one. We'll keep our eye on the election for the next couple of weeks. Obviously, send us the thoughts you have about what you want us to cover. We have lots in store. Can't wait.
1: It's been interesting. I have to say election 2019 was just a drag to get through. I was pretty unenthusiastic about this one. But seeing what's come out so far and having it be much more competitive than it looked like it was going to be, I'm getting into this and enjoying it more than I thought I would. (laughs) Moving on to our next segment, Live Free or Delta Hard. (laughs) Nice title choice there. It's wave Um,
0: four. Pardon? It's the fourth wave. Yeah, no, it's
1: really good on that. We can do... COVID with a vengeance for the third wave, but nevertheless, we're in the third we're in the fourth wave, and new policies are coming out from the BC government in response to it. Most notably was Monday the province announced we're getting vaccine passports. So, yeah. so as of September thirteenth, people will need to show proof of a first vaccination to get into the designated places and then By October 24th, that will be increased to having both doses to get into said places. Those being indoor ticketed sporting events, indoor concerts, indoor theater, dance or symphony events, restaurants, both indoor and patio dining, nightclubs, casinos, movie theaters, fitness centers and gyms, but excluding youth recreational sports, business offering indoor high intensity group activities, Honestly seems mostly covered by the fitness one, but I guess there might be something else categorized by that, as well as organized indoor events such as weddings, parties, conferences, meetings, workshops, and discretionary organized indoor group recreation activities.
0: But not places of worship, because those are organized indoor events that are necessary now and have apparently consulted enough with public health to have special... Procedures that are somehow better than restaurants and nightclubs.
1: No, nobody ever said the BC government's strongest point on their COVID responses was consistency.
0: That said, if you want to go to any of those things, you'll need to get this proof of vaccination, this BC vaccine card, which you'll be able to download at some point soon from the public health website.
1: So the then websites you can up. show
0: it on your phone. Yeah, the website's up. and it
1: was up basically Friday now. So plugged in my information there and got a nice little page that had my name, date of birth, personal health number, and a thing saying I'm fully vaccinated on there I saved the PDF of that to my phone, but it does not did not seem particularly hard to spoof that on there. So I'm a little curious to see if they'll be adding more security measures going forward. Like a photo ID, for example, say, from the driver's license database or something.
0: I think it's supposed to include a picture when it's finally done. That's why I was trying not to say it's there yet. What's also really interesting is that people who have genuine health exemptions or even religious exemptions to va- or religious op- opposition to vaccination won't be exempt. So there's been a couple stories already of people who either... Uh, have been told by their doctor that they have had severe reactions to vaccines in the past and so they're waiting to see more data about these vaccines or some people who wanted to get it but they have disabilities including some severe allergic reactions and were turned down from vaccines and so until they get like a authorized note from their allergist saying they're fine to get this which means they can't get vaccinated yet and soon they won't be able to go anywhere because of that which from the government's point of view is we're protecting you from yourself but is also just weirdly cruel and for a government and for like bonnie henry has emphasized the civil libertarian point of view a lot almost like beyond what people are asking her to do and refusing to bring things in until the last moment arguably from libertarian point of views but then to not allow a health exemption is weird to me i was a little surprised to see that like maybe it was just too difficult to do, but that's not a great reason. Because it feels like you should be able to record that on their health information. They could download the, you know, vaccination card that says exempt or something.
1: Yeah, I I know there's, I don't know how big a problem this has been in Canada with other vaccines, but I know there's definitely been problems in some US states that have exemptions from kind of school vaccine requirements and, and the like for other diseases than covid where it was very easy just to get a doctor's note to get around them and there were enough doctors willing to provide that that it effectively just became an opt-out rather than a specific health exemption so i don't know maybe there's some concerns around that still feels like you could have a tight enough requirement on that to, to make something work
0: yeah and we don't need the perfect card right no matter what card they generate there's going to be people who cheat it the point is to like get most people in and one of the things that it's managed to already do is bump vaccination bookings like up 200 percent in a couple days so we're seeing thousands more people register to get their vaccines which is what we want yeah some people are still going to always going to be dicks we can we got to do some effort to dissuade that and discourage that but you almost just have to accept there's going to be some level of cheating and you want that to be low but it's never going to be zero and it complications of trying to push for zero cheaters isn't worth the cost sometimes. Meanwhile, as the vaccine cards are rolling out we have we were given a mask mandate once again the day after. This was a weird announcement because it came in the middle of the schools and universities update like Dr. Bonnie Henry got up after the ministers uh, uh, Whiteside and Kang to just suddenly be like, and we're bringing masks back and it's wait didn't, why didn't you lead with that? It was weird. It's good. I'm glad to see it. We're seeing cases province-wide that we should all be wearing masks. But yeah, it felt an afterthought. Like, why didn't you announce that Monday?
1: Yeah. This latest round feels more disorganized than they've been in the past. Not quite sure what's up with that, because they must have known this is coming for a long time. That The pulling the mask mandate a couple months back was seen by a lot of people as a bit uh, premature. So...
0: I don't know. Like it's BC exceptionalism. It's it's exceptionalism again, and we've seen it again and again. It's we didn't think that the fourth, the Delta wave that everywhere else has seen, would hit us for some reason.
1: I, I don't get how they're still doing like or their pants policy making this far into it when all of these scenarios were foreseeable a long time ago, by at least several months.
0: So just to wrap up the announcement on schools and universities. schools of great interest to me as my partner as a teacher are largely going to be the same as they were in June, with the exception that cohorts no longer exist, which is great from the administrative point of view and just the, like, not having to have a quarter system that exhausts everyone, but it does mean interacting more with teachers or more people will be interacting and coming into contact in schools. And weirdly, physical distancing is no longer recommended, but you can... But you are encouraged to make sure space is available between students, but they aren't required to physical distance huh. or even recommended to. Which, like, that's the number one thing you're supposed to do for COVID is keep a distance because the droplets can't go that far usually.
1: Oh, well, I do gather the science has evolved somewhat and the understand is now more airborne than when the initial numbers came in or when the initial rep- recommendations were done. I don't know. Maybe the thinking is that two meters versus three meters just doesn't matter as much if you're. No,
0: they're talking like one meter or less versus two meters.
1: Yeah, but that. Yeah, yeah, my my point is the the spacing doesn't quite matter as much if you're inside a room that doesn't have as as much ventilation as the outside for eight hours at a time.
0: Universities came under a lot of scrutiny because universities will be back in class in a matter of days. And people kept asking, okay, we have this vaccine card thing. Will that be required for classes? And they said, we're going to require it for gyms, dining areas, pubs, student club activities, and even housing on campus. But universities cannot require it for classrooms.
1: Which is weird.
0: Yeah, faculty aren't happy. We, we know some profs I've seen. There's a group of profs at UVic who said, just do it. Like the province can't stop. UVic from doing it. In their opinion, these are law profs. But the province did say that the universities can require their staff be vaccinated in this way other employers could. SFU has gone ahead and said from their president that they're going to require everyone on the community, all staff, faculty, and students to make vaccine declarations and do rapid testing if you're not vaccinated. And those will be kept confidential, but will be disclosed to the university. So that's their way to try to get around it. But yeah, a lot of criticism of this university policy to not, because we're going to have 100, 200 plus student classrooms again, and people will have to wear masks in those classrooms. But when you're in there for two hours, I think there were some three-hour classes, if I remember back to university.
1: I definitely had at least one three-hour class. That was, actually, that class is the reason I became addicted to caffeine. That's a story for another time. Uh, and,
0: and you're in these old buildings, right? There's buildings at SFU are mostly in the 50s or in the 60s and 70s. UBC has older buildings than that. They don't always have brand new HVAC systems. Like at least our public schools are have been upgraded to MERV 13 or HEPA filters. So that's doing a lot to help protect students. But universities are worrying. Like at least they're the younger people who don't tend to get as sick. But I really hope that's not the calculation the province is doing. Although it was what they said when they said why uh, staff at long-term care have to be vaccinated because they're coming in contact with people more likely to get seriously ill and die versus students may not.
1: Yeah, that's. I wish I could roll that out, but that does seem annoyingly plausible.
0: That's a dark note to close the podcast on. Then Hopefully, we'll have better l- news l- on let universities me just, next week. Go yeah, ahead. let
1: me just end this on a slightly more positive note. This just came across in the slash we are recording, but the Conservatives have nominated Hannah Hodson for the Victoria Riding. I just wanted to give her a shout out because... She was one of our first patrons and really actually yeah, helped good us. friend,
0: good friend of the podcast.
1: Yeah, really helped us out in our early days with some of the sponsoring on this. And it's great to see her nominated. And I believe she's the first trans candidate the Conservative Party has run in this country. So it's a good bit of representation, too. Good luck, Anna.
0: She's not going to win Victoria, though. It, it, it's,
1: a, it's a long <laughs> shot riding for sure.
0: Like, no offense, but yeah good to see but saying oh here's the ndp candidate for cardston alberta anyway good luck <sighs> thanks for listening we'll talk to you all next week
1: and that has been play ghost find links to everything we talked about at play support the show and get access to our slack channel at patreon.com slash our intro music credit is beautiful british columbia by Serge platnikoff play ghost is a production of legend boot media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.